Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Loretta Turner, a nonprofit executive in San Diego. Loretta's decision to move from New Jersey to San Diego enables her to come to terms with her own racial identity and to step confidently in being her own authentic self. Please welcome Loretta Turner. Welcome, Loretta, to Phoenix Tales. I always start the conversation off by asking one question, and that question is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life? So many, but the one that probably comes to mind as being probably the most life-changing and the most challenging was <laughs> dropping my life in New Jersey and moving all the way across the country to San Diego, California with no job and no plan really set up. <laughs> so let's go back to sort of your life in New Jersey. What kind of propelled you to make that big leap? You know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. When I look back on it now, I can point out things that maybe I didn't realize in the moment were propelling me. But if I could put myself back into my 25-year-old self who knew that she had to make that move, the thing that propelled me was that I just had this innate knowing right around my 25th birthday. And I just felt like there was something missing. There was kind of this emptiness. I felt like I had worked really hard in New Jersey and I had lived in New Jersey my entire life. And I just wanted to get it out into the world and see what else was out there and see if I could challenge myself in an environment, especially one that I haven't grown up in or wasn't used to. And California had always been the dream place for me. A little while after that, I just up and left. You said you lived in New Jersey for 25 years. So I'm assuming you went to university. Did you actually leave the state to go to university or did you stay in New Jersey? I stayed in New Jersey. I wasn't really an academic person in high school. I was an athlete. I was one of those kids who didn't really care about studies that much because I knew I could get away with passing a class because I was a strong athlete. So college wasn't really all that appealing to me. I knew that I wasn't going to compete in sports in college. I felt a little bit lost as far as what I was going to do. I ended up just applying to one school, one local state school, Ramapo College. I had told myself if I didn't get in, I would figure out something else to do. I ended up getting in and the drive was only about 35 to 40 minutes from where I had grown up. That's as far as I had ever gone, as far as moving away, so to speak. I'm assuming you lived with your parents during this period. Is that right? No. When I went to school, I decided to live on campus. Looking back now, when I look at my student loan debt, I'm like, yeah, it might have been the better option to not have to deal with a room and board financially. But I really wanted that opportunity to live on my own and find my own way and just kind of get out of my hometown stuff. It's interesting because most of us have that kind of self-reckoning when we go off to university and being away from home. And it's a period in which you can try new identities. And 
sort of a self-searching period. So did you find yourself doing any of that, even though you were only 30 minutes away from home? When I went away to college, again, I lived there. And ironically enough, I fell in love with academics. And that was such a stark contrast, again, for me, someone in high school who quite frankly, didn't give a damn about school. And all of a sudden I'm away. I'm in this new environment. I'm on my own and I love learning. So I'm going to look at this question through the lens of my upbringing, right? So I'm Asian American, super high expectations, spoken and unspoken from my parents to excel and to go to university, the best possible school you could get yourself into, do the four-year degree and then figure out what you're going to do with your life. The one thing that I haven't heard from you was sort of your parental involvement in this. And you made a reference to the fact that you felt unworthy of the education. So can you give us a little background as to perhaps from a cultural lens, like were your parents involved or not involved? And more importantly, why did you feel unworthy of education? This is going to take a little bit of a deep dive into some stuff. So I'm the oldest of three. And for those who don't know me, for the listeners who are just learning about me, I am a Black woman. I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, and I'm the oldest of three. I've got two younger brothers, so I am the only girl. My mom went to university. She got her bachelor's degree. And then my dad, I think he got his associates, and then he got recruited into tech. I'm not a first-generation student, but I am the first of my siblings to go to school. As I had mentioned, in high school, academics wasn't something I cared for. I was an athlete. But something I hadn't shared yet in this conversation until now was that I also struggled a bit. Well, not a bit. I struggled a lot with my own identity. You know, a Black girl growing up in a predominantly white world, I felt a lot of pressure to figure out who I was and who society didn't think I was. And there was just a lot of confusion. Unfortunately, at the tender age of 13 through 17, a lot of that confusion manifested itself in some non-ideal behavior. I got in trouble with the law a bit. I struggled with relationships to substances, drinking very young, getting involved with drug use very young. So coming back to this idea of this unworthiness, it was just, I had lost faith in myself. I didn't really know who I was. I didn't really know what I was doing. I know that my parents loved and adored me, but I also sensed that they were disappointed in me. They weren't really sure where I was going to go or where I was going to end up. So this idea that I had gotten into school and all of a sudden I was good at it, I was getting good grades and I had an interest, that's where that sense of worthiness felt like. I felt like I had given up on myself. I felt like my family had given up on me. I was just ready to completely change that narrative and, and have my life look differently. Was the school diverse? It was. Well, that's very relative. It was more diverse than what I had grown up with. When I had gone to Ramapo, actually, I have very, very vivid memories of learning about like a Black student union for the first time. That's something I had never grown up around. Like my immediate family is Black, my extended family is Black, and I felt like I could tune into my Blackness when we went to family events. But there was a lot of code switching that was happening. You know, we'd go to a family event over the weekend, and when Monday rolled around and I went back to school, like I didn't talk like that, I didn't act like that. School was really the first time that I could see Blackness and Black joy and Black greatness, number one, outside of my own home, but also in an academic setting. Could you explain what code switching is? Sure. Code switching. When I am with my family, I can be truly who I am. 
I can speak in a way or carry myself or dance in a way or just be in a way that's authentic to me. I'm not so worried about people's perceptions of me. I'm not worried that the way I'm moving or talking or speaking or joking is going to be offensive or it's going to stereotype me in any way because I can be seen as myself, fully as myself. Code switching happens when I'm now in a new environment. I go back to school and now I'm really hesitant on how I speak. I'm really hesitant about what I share about myself. I'm really hesitant about how I carry myself because if I act the way that I've acted with my family around, again, a predominantly white group, stereotypes might come up. They might think of me as, oh, I don't know, an, an angry Black woman or some things that I have experienced. If I act a certain way, these people are going to think that I'm ghetto. Code switching is turning off parts of me to fit in with the predominant group. You brought up an interesting point in that description of code switching because the way you described it is you felt yourself in your family environment, but you initially told us that you had a crisis of identity. So it feels as though what you're describing is you didn't have a crisis of identity. You were fine with being Loretta at home. You were just having a hard time being Loretta outside the house. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. That's a huge part of code switching. In one day, I could feel like three different people. Being at the tender age of 16 and trying to make sense of the world, but also not knowing how to make sense of myself and who I was, it was exhausting. It was exhausting. And that's kind of where the crises like started to emerge. I didn't know who I was or who I was supposed to be or what I was supposed to do. So I know I grew up in a, a very, very, very homogeneous community, and I'm way older than you. So this is at a time period where Asians were not prevalent anywhere. And I know that feeling of being the other, but fitting in. So I understand that sort of tension that you hold when you want to be accepted by the greater community in which you spend most of your time, which is at school, but yet you have this other aspect of your identity and also as racially ethnic people being singled out anyway, right? Just because of the way we look. So when you talk about that moment of, okay, I am worthy of this education, did that start to help you navigate the world more on your own terms? Like the Loretta at home now being able to be Loretta at school. Yes. And it's funny that you're saying my name in this moment because a huge thing that happened at school was I started using the name Loretta. Part of my identity that I struggled with in my hometown, I didn't feel connected to the name Loretta. I was sports oriented. I loved being in the outdoors. I was a little black girl that was hunting and fishing and coming home every day with twigs in her hair and dirt under her nails. And so Loretta didn't really seem like it fit. And my middle name is Nicole. And a lot of the outdoors and sports things I did, I did with my dad. And he loved the name Nicole. So then Nicole stuck and then Nicole turned into Nikki. And so I was Nikki Turner for my childhood. And then when I went to college, I just started to make some friendships. One day I was hanging out with some new friends that I had made. And one of them said, 
I had no idea your name was Loretta and it's such a beautiful name. Would you be open to us calling you that? And I think in college, there was this moment of changing my name and owning my namesake that I was really allowing myself to let go of some of the hurt and the confusion and the pain that came with being Nikki Turner and that I was able to start over as Loretta and just kind of like you mentioned so eloquently, pave the way for my life, for my future in a way that was authentic to me. And that's where it all started in college. You know, I think we all carry those old hurts, right? With us. And I can say even as a 55-year-old woman, I can remember the first time a white friend came over and smelled the fridge, which had a lot of kimchi in it and was like, you know, ooh, what is that, right? Like you have those memories of that kind of child pain. But has it started to diminish in the sense that the more that you're able to own being Loretta, Loretta in the world and being Loretta fully in the world and not having to code switch at all, has the pain started to lessen? And I know you're still young and it's not that far behind you on some level, but I'm just curious. It has. And I don't know if I would use the language. Actually, no, I would say that in a lot of ways it has lessened because I have been able to accept it and understand it. I think going into college, I was holding on to so much of that pain and internalizing it. I didn't have the tools before to understand that that wasn't really about me. That was more so just an unfortunate environment that I had grown up in and people that I had grown up around that hadn't participated in racism and racist acts. Once I was free of that and I was in college and I was around people who saw me for who I was rather than who they thought I should be, once I was able to say, you know what, I'm going to become a yoga teacher because that's something that I want to do in my heart and I'm not really concerned about who else wants me to do this or you know, doesn't want me to do this. Once I was able to start doing those things that felt authentic to me, there were these moments that I was able to say, oh yeah, that thing that happened, that's not because I'm a bad person. That's not because there's something wrong with me. That was someone else projecting something onto me. That was someone else making me the butt of their joke because of their own securities. And so the pain is still there. And I have the tools now to have, number one, compassion for myself, to not internalize any of that stuff, to not say, well, you deserve that kind of behavior because X, Y, and Z. And also I have the tools to have compassion for others and to be able to say, you know, although that person hurt me, although that person excluded me, they're human too. And in my heart of hearts, as painful as it was, I can be forgiving knowing that a lot of the things that I had experienced wasn't because people were intentionally trying to be awful. It was because we're all having this human experience and hurt people. In a world of today where there's been a lot of reckoning, Asians have had to reckon as women are being pushed in front of subways and so forth. And obviously Black Lives Matter and just the horrible, awful divisions that we're seeing throughout the country how do you internalize that? You know, full disclosure, my son is half African-American, half Korean. He's a black man in this world. And so when things like George Floyd happens or happened, 
I can't help but internalize that. So how do you process the world in which we're living currently and still have that sort of wonderful essence that you've described of understanding that it's not about you, it's not personal, but that it's about the other person. But how can you keep that wonderful essence alive when the world is constantly reminding us that it's much uglier than what you're describing? The short answer is that it's not easy and it's possible. So when the world was falling apart in 2020, I once again had my own reckoning. At that point, I had already lived in San Diego, but conversations around Black Lives Matter had happened in 2016 when I was still living in New Jersey. I remember when those things came up in New Jersey, my world was still very white. And so in 2016, when Black Lives Matter really came to light for one of the first times, I was actually telling myself that that's not really my issue. It was painful. It was tough to watch. Obviously, I could relate to it a lot, but I was still distancing myself from it. When everything happened in 2020 and I had moved to California, I had this reckoning again. My world wasn't as white. Actually, I had pursued my master's degree. And so when 2020 came up, I had to have my own reckoning. First of all, say, oh, this is my issue. This is everyone's issue first and foremost, but this is also my issue as a Black woman. There was a time that I just had to be angry and I had to go through that for a little while. I had to really sit in that fire and sit with that pain and have my own reckoning and come to terms with just how ugly this was. From there, I was able to kind of burn all that away and come back to this place of compassion and kindness. Like I mentioned, it wasn't easy. What it had to look like for me was changing my environment and changing some of the people I associated with. I had to put myself in front of people that were willing to talk about those things. I put myself out on the line. I went to protests. I had to really put myself out there and lean into people who were willing to do this work, lean into people who are willing to have these conversations. And so I know that's a long answer, but I think what I would have to say, it was a lot of work. It was a roller coaster. I mean, one of the things that it looked like for me was changing jobs. You know, I was in a job that when George Floyd got murdered, they didn't want to say anything. But meanwhile, I work in nonprofits. Meanwhile, this was an organization that was happily serving brown and black people, but didn't want to make a statement. I had to leave that job. I had to put myself in another organization, in another community of people that were willing to do this work and feel this work and be in community together about what was really happening in the world. I'm going to say just my experience of San Diego is that it's probably not as diverse as LA. Have you noticed that? And has that affected your ability to create a community that looks like you and feels like you? I love that you brought this up. And this is something I love to debunk. I think a lot of people have this image of San Diego that it is very white, which it is. San Diego is massive. There are 3.3 million people in this county, and that number is growing. We share a border with Tijuana, Mexico. So we have insane amount of beautiful Mexican influence in this county. And that's everything from food to language to just everything that happens here has such a strong Mexican influence. There's also a huge Asian population here. And while the Black community isn't as big as I say LA is, or even, you know, the East Coast, New York is, 
there is definitely Black community. And so to answer your question, I have the most Black friends and Brown friends I have ever had in my life. And that happened moving to San Diego. I have been able to find a wonderfully diverse and rich community of people of all backgrounds. We know that San Diego looks very white, and we know that a lot of the most beautiful places in this county are accessed by more privileged people that are predominantly white. So a lot of the work that I do in the county now is making those spaces, especially outdoor spaces like beaches and trails, more accessible to communities of color, especially communities of color. Tell us what you got your master's in. What was the process for you to figure out that's what you wanted to study? (laughs) So thinking about waking up on my 25th birthday and wanting to move to California, I had no plan. I had no job. I just know that I wanted to get out there. And I struggled. I emptied my savings account within, I think, six to eight months. My first job, not even out of college, before I graduated college, was a job with a local nonprofit. When I got to San Diego, I found out that San Diego just happens to be one of the nonprofit hubs in the county. Again, we're a massive county, 3.3 million people, but we've got, I think now, 12,000 nonprofits spread across the county. There is a master's program at the University of San Diego that is ultimately an MBA, but it has a nonprofit focus. I couldn't get a job, ran out of money. I was racking up debt on credit cards. I got involved with a professional association. It's called YNPN, Young Nonprofit Professional Network. And several people were like, oh, you should get connected to the master's program. I love school. (laughs) So I applied. I applied in 2018. I got in. It was a two-year program. I I came out on the other side with a master's as well as a, a certificate in leadership and executive coaching. And I actually graduated top of my class, valedictorian, with a 4.0 GPA. (laughs) It's awesome. And so tell us the work that you're doing now and the work that you're passionate about and that you're doing. How does that connect to Nikki Turner? Oh, God, my heart just like bursted a little bit when you said that. When I think of Nikki Turner, well, let me preface this by saying title-wise, I am a personal development coach, leadership development coach. Although my master's and a lot of my work is in nonprofits, I do work with a lot of nonprofit leaders, but I do work across all sectors, working with individuals, working with corporations, ultimately developing people so that they can figure out, number one, how do I survive at work? Especially how do I survive at a nonprofit? And you and I both know this. (laughs) That can be really wild and crazy. And how do we give people the tools to thrive at work? And then how do we help people find meaning in their work? And so that's what I do now. But thinking back to Nikki Turner, one of the exercises that I do with a lot of my clients is I ask them to think of a time where they were in their true childhood essence. And so when I think about that for myself, and I think about Nikki Turner, I think about a little girl who loved to be sun-kissed, who loved to be in the outdoors. And she loved to be in water, loved to just be running around outside with people and bringing people together. That is a huge part of the work I do now as a development coach, as a development strategist. I'm behind the screen talking about DEI. We're talking about burnout or having these conversations in corporate settings. But what I try to do with all of my clients when possible is I get them outside. The majority of the work that I do with my clients that are San Diego-based is 
getting outdoors and having these conversations, going on retreats that are in the outdoors, getting out and exploring, getting out in the sun, getting out in the water, getting out on a hike and tuning into the best versions of ourselves. Another element of Nikki Turner is that I am introverted. I think back to myself as a kid. I loved alone time. I loved playing alone. I loved being an imaginative kid alone in my room. But what also equally helped me feel lit up was being in community, celebrations, parties, bringing people together, coming together for the collective good, coming together to celebrate something. That was always something that lit me up. And that is a huge part of the work I do now, bringing people together to celebrate, bringing people together towards a common good. That's a great place to end. So I'm going to ask the last question. And the question is, is there a song that either speaks to you or creates a memory or more importantly, feels as though it was written for or about you? What is the song and why? The song is Get Well Soon by Ariana Grande. And God, I'm actually getting like (laughs) a little emotional talking about it. The way that I've always interpreted the song, it's that it's a woman that's talking to herself just with grace and with love and with kindness. And ultimately the message that she's saying to herself is you are responsible for your own wellness. You are responsible for your own happiness. You are responsible for your own health. And there's no need to hold on to the pain or the shame that you felt from the decisions you've made or from the things that's happened to you, but you've got to get well soon. And that's up to you. I can remember times in my life where things were really ugly, where things were really painful, where things were really shameful. And that song would see me through every time. So how can people find you? I'd say that I'm the most active on Instagram. If you want to learn more about me and the work I do and then learn about the things that I'm passionate about and I advocate for, I put out some pretty regular content on Instagram and my handle is Loretta, L-O-R-E-T-T-A dot leads, L-E-A-D-S. So you can find me there. I'm also on LinkedIn, same thing, linkedin.com slash in slash Loretta leads. You can visit my website, which is lorettaturner.com or shoot me an email at hello at lorettaturner.com. Well, thank you so much, Loretta, for doing this. I know that many will find your story inspiring and inspired. Juliana, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Juliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience. When I got tired of waiting, then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack, focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would.